Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Mitch. And I'm Dungeon Master Neil, a.k.a. Joke Maniac. And today we are super, super, super excited. Couldn't be more excited, could we, Neil? Not possible. (laughs) We have ed greenwood here today to give us an interview we're going to pick his brain on world building he asked lots of questions we got some questions from the patreon dragons from the forums and we're just gonna pick his brain and see what wisdom we can glean from ed and the interview is awesome and there's a lot of great things that are said in the interview so much so that we couldn't fit it into one entire episode so you have two weeks of ed greenwood to look forward to yes when ed greenwood talks we listen and you do not stop him from talking no matter what happens (laughs) exactly exactly yeah it was it was a great experience getting to talk to ed and hopefully for you the listener which i i know it will be we know it will be neil it will be a great experience to listen to as well yes but before we get to the meat we have a couple of five-star reviews this one comes to us from america I say that, and you'll see why in the next one. And <laughs> Foreshadowing. It's, uh-oh. And it's from Foo Fighter 2217 And it says, please don't leave me. <laughs> it's a five-star review, and it says, I'm a huge RPG fan, and for the past year and a half, I've been playing my first D&D campaign using 3.5, War of the Burning Sky. I don't know what that is, but I really want to go find out. It sounds really cool (laughs) and trippy. Yes, it has been amazing. Now that we're wrapping up our campaign, I've decided to step into the DM chair and run a homebrew using 5th edition. This podcast has been amazing, inspiring, and anxiety-reducing. Yes. (laughs) I think that's the first time I've heard that one, but... (laughs) Please don't stop doing this podcast. It's amazing. I listen to it while driving all the time. You guys rock. Thanks. Keep doing what you're doing. So no, thank you, Foo Fighter 2217. <laughs> We're glad that you are less anxious these days. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> I've got awesome. anxiety and the only prescription <laughs> is more DMs blog. Yes. All right. That's enough of that. <laughs> anyway, our next five-star review comes from Canada, which is so fitting because Ed Greenwood is from Canada. So here we go. Uh, Canadian five-star review. This one comes from Dungeon Master Phil. This is not the Dungeon Master Phil that <laughs> we are. We know from DMnastics. This is another Dungeon Master Phil. And he says, great advice and great DMs. This podcast is a great resource. As someone who has been DMing off and on for a number of years, but still considers himself driven more by passion and creativity than in any solid experience, I find the advice offered by the two hosts enormously helpful. Now three, no, now four hosts now. Watch out. (laughs) Everything about my game from how I prepare to the content of my stories has drastically improved, and I have Dungeon Masters Chris and Mitch to thank. I've never really been one for podcasts before, but I can't seem to stop listening to this one. Anyone with an interest in DMing, D&D, or any other RPG should give it a listen. Ah, thank you so much, Dungeon awesome. Master Phil. We really, really appreciate that. We're yes. so glad that you are you're gaining and you are getting ideas from our podcast. That's what we're here for. So, without any ado, though, 
We've got some amazing stuff coming up in the meat, Neil. So let's get to the meat. Yay! I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? So for the meet today, we are very honored to be joined by Ed Greenwood, author, game designer, dungeon master, creator of the Forgotten Realms, the world of Hellmaw, the Pony Island Adventures, which is a code name, and we're going to see if we can get the real name from Ed today, and, <laughs> and many, many, many more. So Ed, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Blog. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course, of course. It is our pleasure. So first off, we want to just get to know you a little bit more. So Ed, could you tell us and the listeners just a little bit about you for those of those listeners out there who, how dare they might not know who you are? <laughs> okay, sure. I am male. I am human most of the time. <laughs> I was born in Canada. I have always lived in Canada, in the <laughs> province of Ontario. I'm 56 years old as we say this. I was born in what is now a suburb of Toronto, and I have always, since the age of 14, worked in public libraries. And at the same time, I have, since the age of five or six, been a published fiction author and um, created The Forgotten Realms before there was such a thing as a D&D game. I have been a gamer since uh, since I w could toddle because my father was uh, a radar technician for uh, NATO and NORAD and so on and so forth, and he introduced me to simulation war games, both the Kriegspiel sort, you know, where you're in different rooms and we do the fog of war chain of command, and um, model soldiers on the so-called sand table, and then later on um, various um, military simulation games which were very, very close to what SPI later published. Little square counters with all sorts of arcane symbols on them and stacking limits and zones of control and stuff on hexes and that did tactical stuff in a particular encounter. And then along came Dungeons & Dragons. And the rest, as they say, is history! <laughs> At what age did you say you started being a published author? I'm four, five, or six years old. I imagine the published wow. would have been, I would have been about six. Wow. Because I was writing stuff, and my, my father started taking it to work, photocopying and distributing to all his colleagues. And eventually the colleagues would say things like, oh, I really like that one. Could he write more about this? So <laughs> I, was, I was writing little short fiction to order. And indeed, The Realms was born then. Wow. Like that, when you were that young, it was it was created at that young of an age? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Wow. For the gamers out there who think that Elminster is my Mary <laughs> Sue and is my alter ego, picture a nerd, a string-bean-thin nerd with brand-new plastic, quote, unbreakable, unquote, glasses, Clark Kent style, <laughs> um, no beard and so on, writing about Elminster. So Elminster was definitely not my alter ego. Now, I've come to sort of look like Elminster by the magic <laughs> of real life. But I assure you, at the time I was writing about this crotchety old mage, I wasn't old. I don't think I was crotchety. <laughs> and, uh, 
I, I hadn't got the girls yet, you know, so it, it, it was all acting, make-believe. Huh. Yeah. That's crazy. I, people try to publish books their whole life. You, <laughs> at the young age, that's, that's amazing. Do you remember what your first published work was? Uh, no. <laughs> if you mean distributed to many, mm -hmm. well, from the time I was very, very young, I was writing things up for our local United Church Bulletin, which is the little <laughs> thing you got handed that said, you know, yep. the, the ladies' euchre club will meet this night, and the stitchery <laughs> guild will meet this night, and and um, bridge met this night. The high score was, low score was, and a good time was had by all. I was writing that up as a little kid, and I was typing it laboriously, handing it to my dad to be cut and pasted, literally cut and pasted with glue. Uh, okay, so if if you want publishing that way, that I was four, five, and six years old. If you mean like books that got distributed to thousands of people that were printed. I did get a novel printed called Fool's Master when I was, I think, eight years old. Hmm. And um, I think it sold something like four and a half, five thousand copies, you know. Wow. Um, so, yeah, back then, uh, my first mass market would probably be um, Spellfire, the first hmm. Forgotten Realms novel in 1987. But, of course, by then I'd already had sales in the millions with the Realms box set, and before that, the Endless Stare, the first D&D um, &D module that they they uh, assigned to me so I could learn how TSR did modules. And of course, I'd, I'd been published in Dragon from 1979 onwards with um, The Cursed was my first. Cursed in 30, issue 30, The Crawling Claw in issue 32, and then a Divine Right article in issue 34, Gates article in 37, which so impressed Kim Mohan because I had footnotes. He'd never seen <laughs> footnotes in a Dragon article before. That the next Gen Con, he invited me to have a little stroll in the grassy grounds of Wisconsin Parkside University campus and said, how would you like to be a contributing editor? And I said, sounds great, yes. Um, what do I get paid? He says, oh, that's the contributing part. <laughs> Man, that's that's quite an accomplishment for such a young age. I uh, I feel like at my at that age I was playing video games and had no no hands in the creating process at all. You were lucky. You had video games when I was yeah, a kid. They, we had to it. hold up hand puppets, and those were our video games. Oh gosh! Or we would yell at the black and white television and move the rabbit ears, and that was video games. He had to he had to walk his printed material, <laughs> and you walked without your shoes up uphill hill both and, ways. Yeah, all to, that, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. <laughs> yep, I was spoiled with video games back in back in my childhood. So <laughs> back in that day, Ed was the remote. There was no there was no clicking. There was telling your kid to go change the channel. That's right. You had a UHF and a VHF button that went thunk. Thunk, thunk, as you change channels. You got, if you were lucky, where we were nine channels. Nine, count them, nine. Whoa. And most of the channels came on the air at 9 a.m. Yeah. And they went off the air at midnight if they were major American right. networks. And if they were Canadian, they went off at the air at 10, 10, 30, 11 and they played a stirring rendition of our national anthem with a, <laughs> a slideshow of, um, of uh, jet fighters and ook picks and walruses falling off snow <laughs> ice flows and, <laughs> and endless virgin forests and guys on snowshoes trudging through them going, I'm lost, I'm lost, and I'm cold. You know, and, and that was it. It went off the air and showed you an Indian head test pattern. <laughs> 
<laughs> we got really good at watching the India Head test pattern, imagining what exciting things were happening somewhere else in the world. <laughs> Storytelling. Your best, your best favorite program. <laughs> yes, the test pattern. <laughs> so you're still working in libraries, and you've been doing that, you said, for a, a long time. Do you have people come up to you and ask you in the library to like sign sign their books of your novels or do you have people come up to you and ask you have you ever had somebody come up to you and ask for an ed greenwood book and had no clue that you <laughs> that you yes. were the author of said book yes you yep. have <laughs> I've, I've been asked for autographs i've had people come up and say oh uh, are you ed greenwood <laughs> yes oh good um my friends and i are having this argument we're playing <laughs> <laughs> Palladium, the original <laughs> rules. And, and it's like, da, 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 da. <laughs> and, and yes, yes, I've had people ask me for Ed Greenwood books and without knowing I was Ed Greenwood. And, That's awesome. And then and I've even had people say, is this any good? <laughs> well, yes, it's wonderful. I like I, it quite I a bit. I like it a lot, yes. I, I thought I did an especially good job on, the, on the, the, the scene where they fall out of the castle in Chapter 3. <laughs> and then you watch their eyes yeah. change realization <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so That's but no awesome. it, it, when you're a public librarian <laughs> you get asked all sorts of weird questions mm -hmm. from the very simple what time is it or where is the bathroom down to okay um who is Talleyrand's second in command and, and, and <laughs> at the battle of and of course that isn't from a war gamer mm -hmm. that's from some poor person who has to do a history project or <laughs> yeah. is, they're, lo they're looking to you for spark notes <laughs> well yeah because hey librarians know everything and guess what yeah. folks they do we control the world we know everything don't worry about the nsa the fbi ca worry about your smiling local horn rim glasses uh, hair in a bun librarian that's who you gotta watch <laughs> out for <laughs> currently you've been doing a lot of world building I feel that that's an understatement on my part, but <laughs> can you tell us about the, some of the projects you have going on? I know Helma's already out. I listened to the first book on audiobook. Admittedly, I would just end up standing in my home listening to it, thinking I was going to get other things done. That didn't happen. But I'm really excited for a lot of the things you have coming down the line. Okay, well, where do I begin? I'm getting older. And for all of us, our lives end at some point. The time has come when the passing years that a lot of my author friends, from Roger Zelazny to Terry Pratchett, have left us. And in some cases, they've left us with projects unfinished. In some cases, you've got to see them frantically trying to check off things on their bucket list before they go. Well, I had a huge bucket list because I was so busy working on the realms. I've been working on the realms every day of my life. I still do work on it every day. I get questions from all over the world. Gamers ask me stuff for their campaigns. Um, just this morning, um, I, I, got, I got a query. Somebody had looked at the Sundering characters, the Hero of the Realms, the lovely Tyler Jacobson panoramic piece of art we gave away at Gen Con years ago, and said, okay, who are all the characters? Who are they? <laughs> you have to name all the characters. So you know, that sort of stuff happens all the time. Because of that, I had been having ideas. This is 40, 50 years worth of ideas, folks, that I'd just been 
as we say in the newspaper business, put on the spike. Because, yes, we used to have actual spikes on our desk that you yep. could drive your hands through and go, ah! <laughs> you know, but, but you, you rammed pieces of paper on them, and they were that was your filing system. And this was before these things called Post-its. Okay? <laughs> but you, you had little torn scraps of paper, which were notes for things you wanted to do. And I realized, okay, my time is going to run out, and I'm never going to get around to these unless I make a big concerted effort to do it. Some friends of mine who wish to remain anonymous, but one of them used to be my publicist back at Random House in the day, said, you know, you got to get going on this. And they helped me to do it, the things I could never do as a busy writer on my own, organize my time, get stuff going. So we thought of an idea of an author collective so that some of my friends who were writers both and unpublished writers but also veterans that you know were game game writers that i knew and liked and got to work with we could all play on things together because the one thing that i saw that and again this is part of the my the sands of time running out for me if i am the sole creator of a world then i am its bottleneck you'll be waiting for the next adventure and that means I have to sit down and write it. So if I'm busy, like with my day job, or fixing the car, or fixing my frozen pipes, or whatever it is, you have to wait a little longer. But if there are a dozen, 20, 80, yeah, as we have in Helma now, over 80 oh, people with wow. novels scheduled, then you, I realize your wallet might be challenged to keep up with all of them. <laughs> but... We're doing things differently than a tra traditional publisher here. And a traditional publisher, if you don't rush out and get that thing, it's gone off the shelf and something else is in its place and you missed it. Which means you have to remember its name, find out its ISBN, special order it from somewhere, usually pay extra. No, no. We want to keep things in print forever. So if you're not ready for the next Helmaw book, or your wallet isn't ready, or you just don't have time, don't worry, it's not going away. So what we're going to do with the Ed Greenwood Group, and by the way, the Ed Greenwood Group includes audio dramas, movies and television when we can get there, yeah. an online magazine, the Onder magazine, because it's based out of a website that we're calling onderlibrum.com, and then settings. And the settings have already begun with Helma. We will add Pony Island Adventures, and its real name is... Its real name is coming out. Is coming out in August, and then we will add folklore. The affliction. How many, how many words is it? How many words is it? The real name. Shorter than you think. Yeah. So you can't give us one word. <laughs> uh, no, I can't give you one word. Okay. Can you give us one yeah. letter? Yes. Okay. S. S. There well, you I go, don't. Want you, I don't want you to have to buy a vowel. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not saying where in the word. S is, or how of many course, times S not. appears in that <laughs> but word, there. but there are, there are words, and <laughs> authors use words over and over again. You know, we use words like the, and ah, and is, yep. and at, and those words have been used before. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so we start with Helma, hopefully one novel a month, and an audio drama coming out pretty soon, and then each book... And it started with Helma, Your World is Doomed, which was my launch novel. You can get that in hardcover. You can get it in trade paperback. 
You can get it in, as an ebook. You can get it as an augmented ebook. You can get it as an audiobook. You can get it in Portuguese Brazilian in all of those formats. We're trying to make things available how you, you the reader, you the consumer want them, which is why we call the Ed Greenwood Group a transmedia group. We're trying to make things available in all formats. And we're going to try and do that for everything. And one of the things we're going to do is once we're rolling, let us assume that, well, okay, Mitch, let's assume you have a novel, mm-hmm. a Helma novel. In the Onder magazine, we are going to be asking you to give us six months ahead of time a short story that sets up your novel. So sometime between six months before your novel and your novel, in the magazine, we'll publish that short story and we'll say, you like this? Coming up, a novel with the same characters. Or, you know, this has spawned a novel. And you'll and we tell you when it is and when it comes out. And then after the novel comes out, probably about three months after the novel comes out, we'll already have in hand from you an epilogue, which it can be another short story or just a little scene you know, it's sort of a coda. What happens afterwards? And then we published that in the Onder magazine said, hey, do you like this? Hey, well, then you missed a great novel that comes before it. And, and we're going to try and do that with every novel. And what that means is if you, you, Neil, you fall in love with a setting, you can do the subscription model if you, you know, have a nice plump wallet and don't have to worry about missing anything. And the, the gravy train of stuff in a particular setting will come your way. Or you can pick and choose. But the point is there will always be something there for you. The settings do not die. If I die, no, no problems. The publishing company just keeps rolling. And any author who is a Sosoria member can publish something new in that setting. And the settings keep rolling and nothing goes out of print. What we do is we start with Helma, which is demons on our modern world. Demons on Earth among us. Um, parental warning, this one can get a little raw. Helmaw can be anything from demons want to eat us, to demons want to rule us, demons want to torture us, or demons want to fall in love with us. And we're going to be having some novels that are frankly comedic. Um, there's one coming up called The Incubus Tweets, which uh, by Rob King, that has tweets in it, that has <laughs> online presence, that has That's Facebook awesome. stuff bouncing back and forth. It's not just a book, and it is drop-dead funny. There are a lot of the novels we've published so far in the Helma line and the ones that are coming up. Uh, Marie Bilodeau's novel, Eye of Glass, for instance, would make a dynamite TV show. It's got all these weird and wacky characters that bounce off each other and spend a lot of time together. Sort of like, I don't know, Friends or Big Bang Theory or pick your TV program. A bunch of people that you want to hang out with each each episode. And that's what we're trying to do with the Ed Greenwood Group. Create settings that you can fall in love with. You might call Helma Urban Fantasy. You might call Pony Island Adventures Medieval Big Tent Fantasy. And we'll also have a space opera setting. We'll have a hard science fiction setting. The space opera setting is called Lost Princesses of Mars. And don't worry, it's not about gals in brass bikinis. The <laughs> Princess of Mars the, in the title are warships. And they have been lost for a long time. And then somebody finds one of them. And it changes the whole balance of power. So, Lost Princesses of Mars. There are many others. Death Helm, which is about 
the undead. Oh my goodness! There's so yeah, much Neil's fun here. Very yes. excited about that okay. one. I'm so bummed. It's I'm so bummed how far out it is from right now. But I'm very very well, excited. That's about the one. thing. We want these up and running. We want to be able to give you a steady stream of stuff. So it takes time to get everything rolling. And there'll be there'll be role playing games adventures attached to all of these, and there'll be mini games. Little fun mini games you can play with the family, or you can play in an hour, play in nice. your lunch hour. I mean, yes, we love huge games that it, you, it takes you three hours to unpunch all the pieces and lay them out. As veteran war gamers, we <laughs> love games like that. We lust after games like that, and they are mm. totally impractical for most people to play. <laughs> we want games that you can sit down and have it in the same way that your grandparents sat down and had a quick round of cards, mm -hmm. and they enjoyed it, and it was even when they weren't paying attention and it was just an excuse to get together and gossip, they knew how to play, they could play without thinking, and it could be fun. And you could also see when they were dead bored, and they would do things like, they'd play euchre and they'd say, I'm going it alone. And you'd look at your grandfather's hand and think, you're crazy, you don't have a single card to go it alone. And he was so bored, he was just gonna try and bluff his way through. No, okay, well, we, we want little fun games like that, and we want these to be worlds that you can fall in love with and hang out in. And anybody who thinks they're up for singing, dancing, acting, writing, doing art in these worlds, we want everybody to be able to pitch proposals. And if you're up to snuff, yes. And we want to do kids' books, and we want to do young adult books, and we want to do adult books. We want it all. And we want artifacts. If you want to buy a painting hand done by somebody that is in the novels, we can sell it to you. It's going to cost you considerable bucks. If a hundred people order it, we'll get them printed and the price will come way down. If you want keychains, if you want <laughs> little pieces of jewelry to wear, we're into that because we want to make the world setting something that you fall in love with. So that's what we're doing that's different. The other thing that we're doing that's different is because this is an author's collective, none of us get salaries, nobody gets paid in advance. Everybody gets royalties, but you get 30%. Or rather, the creators get 30%. So if you and your friend want to do a graphic novel, and one of you is going to draw, one of you is going to write, you've got to split the 30%. But that's the model we want. And yes, the stuff that is set in our settings, we sort of own. So it's sort of like work for hire, but unlike work for hire, it stays in print forever. You don't get orphaned. You don't get left alone. You mm -hmm. get to point at something 40, 50, 60 years from now, and it's still there, it's still for sale. And you can say, I was young then, I would do it differently today. <laughs> but <laughs> you could, people can still read it. And you can go back and fix things and you can update things and you can write sequels and you can start your own series inside our settings. If people love a particular character, well, this happened with the realms. If people want more of, say, Erlen and Danilo, Lane Cunningham's character, if Elaine wanted to write in one of our settings, she can't take Erlen because that's a realms character, but if she had a character in the setting and the fans started saying, oh, will your new character ever fall in love? Well, yes, and I'm going to write about it now. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing. You could start your own series within the setting and just keep going. We don't mind. It's whatever the, the public wants. That's amazing. I didn't realize that it, I knew you were working on a lot. 
but this is like a tremendous not a tremendous project this is like numerous tremendous projects Mm -hmm. and and all I got to say is um, I'll begin writing that novel right away. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, if you want to write for one of our settings, there are electronic pitch forms at Under Librem. Because I don't want to be a bottleneck, every setting has its own lore guardian. And you make your pitch to the lore guardian, and the lore guardian says, eh, that might not work. You know, like, this is the in-so-deep setting, so it's not the right setting for talking animals. You know, or whatever. <laughs> you know, or whatever, but... If the pitch is approved, then yeah, you just start right in. Now, you're right. Some of the settings are going to take a while. The, the, mm-hmm. the setting that's closest to Thulu, Death and Tentacles, or Death Helm, mm-hmm. uh, um, or Swords and Shadows, which is um, murder mysteries in Renfairs in our real world, fictitious Renfairs, because um, the fact that we're going to have murder mysteries means we better not have real Renfairs. <laughs> but those will take years to, to get ready and launch. But that's okay. You can write short stories you can build up stuff you can have stuff in your back pocket we don't want to put short stories in the under magazine for a setting until the setting launches which means if you wanted to write something and get it published right now yeah we'd love to have great quality hellwa short stories and very soon we'll need great quality pony island short stories because they will launch early on and i think those two big settings oh there's a th- did i mention there's a steampunk setting called for you wolf and not. empire oh well nice and and there yeah. are lycanthropes. That's the wolf part, and <laughs> and it's sort of like uh, Congress, the Congress of Vienna, and so on. Um, Napoleon's been um, gone now, and they're they're partitioning up Europe, and there are fictitious countries in Europe, not just real ones. And it's sort of that era, so you know you can do highwaymen, you know. And for our American fans, there's one called Against the Mask. Against the Mask is at the time of the Second Congress. Remember, Congress wasn't a place. It was a meeting, and the second one was in Philadelphia. And the second one is where they set up the Secret Service, and they set up the Central Bank, and they sent up the, the idea of having a Supreme Court and, and overall federal laws. Which means if you were a lumber baron, or a fur baron, or a gold baron, or whatever, you saw the central government as something that was going to trammel your powers. You were all powerful. All of a sudden, somebody was going to come along and apply powers to you. Well, some of the people just sort of grumbled about that, and some of them decided to shoot it down. And they formed a secret society called the Maskers. So, George Washington, being a general, he had some of the scouts that used to work for him, military scouts, when he was back leading armies. And some of them became his agents. They're sort of like early tricorn hat wearing flintlock wielding james bonds they are the agents who fight against the mask so i mean you know if if you're into early american history this is a chance to do something really cool and different in the setting and some of these settings may be tiny there may be five six seven books and some of these settings like helma helma has 85 novels they're being written or they're about to be written, but people have asked us, can I write this? And we said yes, and we've given it a, a publication slot. Pony Island Ventures, I think, is going to be even bigger. So they're just going to keep going. Right now, we have 500-plus books scheduled. The sky is the limit! Okay, now you asked me to talk about a little bit about my world building. There you go. 
That's awesome. Because <laughs> I think you so small. much. <laughs> yes. So much exciting stuff coming down the line. Oh, and I'm also going to be doing Forgotten Realms. I haven't stopped. Awesome. <laughs> We're very happy to hear that. <laughs> Neil, I think you have a specific question for Ed for his Pony Island setting. Uh-oh. I do. Okay. You, <laughs> he may or course. may not answer. <laughs> exactly. Okay. You can do with this, with this what you will. Essentially, the Hierophar of the Pony Island adventures feels like almost the anti-Elminster. Not sure if that's like an accurate assumption on my part based on everything I've seen so far, or if you have anything at all to say about that. Sure. Back when I was designing the realms just for me, I had lots of wizards because it was fun. When the realms became an official game setting, and I was talking back and forth with Jeff Grubb, okay, what is the realms? I said, okay, this is a high magic setting. There's lots of magic around. There's lots of alternatives around. And the reason I want all those alternatives is because we were all tired of rules lawyers who'd memorized everything in the player's handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide. Oh, so if this isn't a horn of blasting, it must be a horn of Valhalla or a horn of bubbles. You know. <laughs> Every Dungeon Master listener right now is shaking their head up and down. Yes, yes, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so we wanted to have so many spells that nobody could keep track of them all. And so many different magic systems. There's this gal with glaring at you from across the room, and she starts casting a spell. You don't go, oh, she must be a druid, or, oh, she must be a cleric of this level. Oh, she must be a, a prestidigitator because of the number of magic missiles that, you know. You can't pull any of that stuff because she could be an incantatrix. You see, you just overload people with different things, so they have to start role-playing again. You ask the dungeon master, what do I see? Oh my goodness, what does that mean? Everybody in the party looks at each other, and then it's just like real life. You have to react to what you see not what you know because you memorized it out of, your, out of the rule books. It's the difference between the guy who can ace a test in geology, but when his parachutes failed and he's plummeting towards the top, a mountaintop and he's going to be crushed flat in about 30 seconds, he can't remember everything perfectly for geology that he's going to hit. <laughs> There's the difference. So I wanted the realms to be a high magic setting. What that meant was it led to the Chosen of Mistra and their championing of magic. Many gamers make the mistake of thinking, oh, the Chosen of Mistra are the good guys. They're not. They're neither good nor evil. What they are is the people who want to get magic into the hands of the common man. So everybody uses magic. You use magic to clean your windows. You use magic to do your laundry, like they do in Helrua. And they don't want rulers, tyrants, to control access to magic. Oh no, you've got to be the king's wizard or you can't be a wizard or we kill you. You know, that's what they were acting against. So in that way, Elminster is the perfect anti-Hyrofar because unlike the realms, in the Pony Island adventure setting, there are many people with the gift for, for magic, as in the well talent, the innate talent to work magic. But the priests of Relagor on one continent, on one side of the Firefall, they have what you might almost call Amish or Mennonite society in Relagor. It is pleasant, it is bucolic, you grow the crops for everybody, your life is ordered. Boy, is it ordered. There is no personal freedom, but why can't you just be happy? 
because everything's been provided for you. But it, it is stultifyingly controlled by the priest. The countervailing thing is the Hierophar. The Hierophar, one of his names is the tyrant of all archwizards, which is darned close to the unvarnished truth. Because what the Hierophar does is, the moment you become magically more powerful than the local wise woman or the local hedge wizard, and what I mean by that is, if you're somebody locally who can sell healing or can reset bones or can say weal or woe to something, the Hierophar might ignore you. But the moment you start casting spells that people can see, your, your fireballs, your lightning bolts, your, your conjuring more than hand fire, like if you make your finger go on fire and light your, your own uh, campfire with it, that's probably okay. You throw fire at anybody, that's not okay. <laughs> and then the Hierophar comes to you with a hit team, or rather, he doesn't come, he sends a hit team. And the hit team is probably a dozen warriors who will be in matching plate armor, better than anything you've ever seen, and they will have four or five wizards with them who all work for the Hierophar, and they will on the spot give you the choice of working for the Hierophar or death. He controls magic. So in that way, Elminster, whose mission for Mistra is to meddle with people, to distribute magic, to leave scrolls and wands lying around for farmers to find so magic gets into everybody's hands. Yes, he is the anti-Hierophar. So the Pony Island Adventures is not the realms. If you're thinking you can tell realm stories in Pony Island Adventures, no, because Pony Island Adventures, you cast a powerful spell, well, the Hierophar will be on your tail from that moment on. So the stories have to be very different. We won't be having any swaggering Gandalfs in this setting because they'll die in a firefight with the Hierophar probably around two-thirds of the way through the novel unless they can disguise themselves in a heck of a hurry. And disguising themselves doesn't just mean changing their shape and appearance. It means not using magic ever again for a long time. <laughs> because if you do, the Hierophar goes, ha-ha! So it is a different setting. And the reason I wanted to do that is it challenges writers to tell better stories. They can't use the wizard as the god in the machine, the Duzex Machina. They can't use it as the get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't just cast a spell and get out of this. And when you read my first Pony Island Adventures novel, the launch novel for the setting that comes out in August, entitled Between My Usual Murders, which I finished two days ago, <laughs> when you read that, you will realize what it feels like to be on the receiving end of I am magically powerless. Who are these almost Nazi guys, almost, you know, guys with black helicopters and black sunglasses who show up and muscle everybody around because they have a little magic? And then you will rapidly think, I don't like these guys, but there's nothing I can do about it because I can't run away. That's Pony Island Adventures. And Pony Island Adventures has everything from horses and horse planes to thick jungles and snake-headed people to dragons. Oh, yes, that's the other thing. I forgot to mention, there are two sorts of dragons. There are the brute dragons that you and I can ride or kill and eat or whatever. And then there are the really intelligent dragons who have all the powerful magic. And when they wake up, the Hyrofar and all the people like him will be swept away. And guess what? They're waking up. That's why our novels are set right now. Anyway, there you go. You see, and, and that, awesome. that is world building. It's giving you a funky place that is imaginary but feels like you want to 
hang out there. Maybe you wouldn't actually want to be there when the dragon's <laughs> roaring down, but but you want to visit it and find out yeah. what's happening because cool things are happening that is more cool than you having to take out the garbage. Neil, you got you got a pretty good answer there. I would say when I did and when you first pulled back, I was expecting you to uh, break up again. <laughs> <laughs> but you, that was a good answer, yeah. <laughs> we have another question for you. This one comes from Volash, one of our Patreon dragons, and <laughs> I like this is where we we can really start getting even detailed on what you do, Ed, as world building. But Volash asks, he says, often when I'm trying to design something new, just getting started is the hardest part. When you're building a new setting, be that a world, town, whatever scale it is, what is the first thing you do? So where do you start in your world building process? Well, the answer is it's different for every project. So mm -hmm. it's it's the, the old standby, it depends, weasel mm -hmm. answer. But okay, for me, when I'm on my own, my druthers, it always starts with a tiny little daydream or mental image, like a movie, a very short one. For instance, the Forgotten Realms started with, it's nighttime, somewhere in the cold north. Gentle snow is falling like a Christmas card. It's deep woods. There are gleaming pairs of wolf eyes watching from out of the trees. And in the foreground, there's a tiny campfire. One woman is sitting alone at her fire. She's clad in wayfarer's clothes, boots, and so on. She has long, bumbling silver hair unbound, flowing free, and she's playing the harp. And her harp music brings a second woman out of the trees to the campfire to join her, who also has long silver hair. Who are these people? Boy, they're good looking. Wow. I wish I could hear that music. What's going on? That's where the realm started. So for me, the image starts. But to answer the question properly for the patron who asked it, I would ask you a counter question. What are you designing this setting for? Hmm. Is it for a one-time short story, a one-time play session? Or do you want to build a world that will last for years so that when you're sitting around with your players, 60 or 70 real years from now, when they're in the next bed in the nursing home, the setting is still going strong and you can say, remember the time when, oh yeah, just let me get my hearing aid and put my teeth back in. Yeah, that was great. I remember that. We killed the Balrog. Yeah. You know, or whatever it is. You know, you decide what you want the setting for because what you want it for is going to decide how you design it. But for me, it starts with an image. And if somebody feels overwhelmed by world building, I would say to them, start with the image or the place. Is it the tavern that they're, all the adventurers are going to meet in? Okay, what's outside the tavern door? Is it a bucolic rural village? Or is it a back alley in a big bustling city? Then you ask yourself questions that go out from there. Okay, if it's a village, what do they do in this village? Is there a road through it? Do caravans move along it? Okay, caravans take stuff that is in surplus at one place, and they take it to another place where there's a shortage, so they can sell it. So what's produced over there and what's missing over here and vice versa. And then you want like adventure opportunities. Who in town has a rivalry with it? who else? Who's fighting with who else? Who owes who else money? What are the family feuds? Are there monsters? Are there, are there brigands slash outlaws slash Robin Hood's men hiding in the woods preying on these caravans? Are there highwaymen? Are the highwaymen actually highway women? <laughs> are they the local village girls? 
finish doing the laundry and everything, and then they go to bed, and they wait to hear if their parents snore, and then they put on men's clothing, <laughs> jump out the window, and pull their swords out from underneath the, the back manure pile in the stables, and then they go out and kill things. Whatever the cool idea you want to develop from there, build the setting around it. And that will immediately make forced design decisions on you, like, okay, where's the nearest seaport? Well, where Where is all this stuff going? Who has the money? Who rules this place? Does the king live right there? Or does the king live thousands of miles away or hundreds of miles away? Do they ever see the king? Or does the king send these heralds or envoys, big pompous people with you know, gleaming stuff, to come and unroll a scroll, which will immediately roll up again and hit them in the nose, or whatever it is, and say, <laughs> hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The king issues his royal proclamation. And then that's an adventure idea. Okay, and so therefore you develop the world to suit the story you're telling. Now, what I developed the realms for, I wanted it to be the land of a thousand stories, which is why TSR was interested in it, because they'd just done Dragonlance, which took everybody's resources in the company for a couple of years to tell the land of one story. It was a great epic quest. What do you do when you're finished? Uh, we don't know what's on the other side of Kryn. So let's show <laughs> you the side of Kryn and let's do it again. And I was saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> that is not what the realms is, guys. That, that's fine. That's what Kryn is. That's fine. But because I'm a storyteller and I wrote this as a fiction world before there was a game, it is the land of a thousand stories. And they said, wonderful, because we have all these things we're planning here. Like Doug Niles has his, his Albion, Celtic, England, Matter of Britain campaign that he wants to plug in. And we have this idea over here called Jungle Adventures, became Malatra. We have this other thing called Arabian Adventures, became El Khadim. We have all these things that we want to plug in and bolt on. We want to have pirates. We want to have Egyptian pyramids with pharaohs. We want to have frozen northern adventures. We want to have jungles. We want to have... And I said, no problem. There's room for all of them. This one goes here. This one goes here. This one goes here. That is how the realms grew. I would submit to you that most of you will go nuts trying to build that vast. So concentrate on the story at hand, the big story you want to tell. Make sure it's got subplots like a good sitcom or a good drama on television. <laughs> There's a couple of subplots. Uh, if you remember X-Files, there was a character whose name we don't know. So he's, he's variously referred to as Cancer Man or Cigarette Smoking Man or Smoking Man. Characters like that who are going to come back in and have their own mysterious stories. Build in a whole bunch of them, because once you do, they will build your future stories for you. Because the players will send their characters, let's find out what that guy's doing. Or the last time we saw that guy, he warned us never to look at the blue parrot. I want to look at the blue parrot, and I want to know <laughs> why he told us that. You see, they generate your own stories. There's your world building. Follow the story. It's all about story, because nobody cares how many hours you put in drawing that map. Nobody cares how many things you consulted. Nobody cares how many piles of notebooks you, the dungeon master, have of ideas of the names of the children and great-grandchildren and the unborn and stillborn the, the, the members of the noble family that you'll never see. What they care about is the story that unfolds at the table and how excited and engaging it is for them and how their characters matter and do things that matter, do heroic things that we can't do in real life. 
In real life, you can't march into Congress and say, will you guys quit fooling around? This is important business here. I want you to do this and this and this, and you over there, shut up. You know, you can't do that in real life, but your characters can in a fantasy setting. They can say, there's going to be some changes around here because there's a new sheriff in town, and it's me. You can do that. And, of course, the Dungeon Master can throw all the complications he or she wants in your way, but if the Dungeon Master isn't just going to make them up off the top of their head and therefore become your enemy, which is the worst sort of D&Ding, you know, where the Dungeon Master is the adversary of the players, if the Dungeon Master builds a detailed world, then the world generates the conflicts. If these people over here are going to be rich and these people over here are going to be slaves, then the people being slaves, so that those people can be rich, are going to have a problem with being slaves. There's a built-in conflict that's set up by the world. Ta-da! World building 101! <laughs> awesome. It's really affirming for, I think, us at the Dungeon Master's Block to hear everything you've said, because like from episode one, we've been talking about world building. There's different types, and you can go big to small and start with the the map and then create all this content for each country and then each town and whatever. And, and I think me and Chris, who was the, is the other guy who started this podcast, we said, we like to do small to big, start with a town, start with a little story. And when it comes up, build your world out and keep, and it's really great to have that affirmingness from someone who's created so many worlds and just have that being said. And if it didn't carry weight when we said it, I think it carries weight (laughs) when Ed Greenwood says it. So, (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I have seen way too many people who want to write fantasy novels. Mm-hmm. The de- detailing the world before they start becomes their procrastinating time sink, and they never write the novel. Yeah. Or it takes them years. Now, Tolkien was a special, because it was his hobby. He was a professor at Oxford, a professor of what we would call linguistics, a languages professor. And he was writing this whole thing for fun for him and to develop his elven languages and so on. So if he took 16 years beside that tomb in Moria before he got back to it because life happened, hey, I don't want to rush a masterpiece. It turned out just fine, okay? <laughs> but, but for some of us, the world building will become the time sink. So yes, I agree. Mitch, you are right. Start small. Build outwards from small. Do what you can. Keep the story moving. And the lovely thing about computers now that our parents and grandparents didn't have, if, we, if they drew a map and they wrote, here be dragons at this big empty continent at the top, well, they were going to make that map really messy by scraping if it was parchment or getting out the eraser if it was paper <laughs> and writing stuff later on. But in the age of computers, you can have here be dragons up there. And then af- after six play sessions in, you can say, bearded merchant came from here with iron ingots, must mm-hmm. have iron. You can just add little bits. Mm-hmm. Before you ever get to that world, you now have a checklist that looks like um, if you ever belong to the uh, Automobile Association and you order one of those triptychs and it's going to take you through Michigan and tell you who Ypsilanti was named for, you know, and what they do there. You can be building your own fantasy version of that for the places you haven't been to yet. And so by the time the play gets there, you've got this little checklist. Okay, they they make wine there. They've got to make wine here because I've had wagon loads full of wine coming <laughs> from there. So, <laughs> so I mean, you can you can build your world that way. So yeah, do it small and build outwards. And, and, and okay, I'll shut up now because as you can tell, I can go on for hours about all of this stuff. And everyone would be going, 
geez, I wish I'd sat in the bathroom to listen to this because I wouldn't have to move then. But <laughs> oh no, we're we're fascinated by all of this. We and we appreciate everything you're giving to us. And Neil, I think you have a another question from one of, one of our other hosts on the show that's not able to join us today. <laughs> DM Main Prize wants to know which part of world building you enjoy creating the most. Is it the characters, the places? Or the answer I think you're going to give, the stories, and why is that? Yeah, okay, it's two things. <laughs> it, uh, there, I'm going to weasel here. All right. It's a double answer. It's the characters. It's the characters. Because a world is not geography. It's not maps. Hmm. They're handy to have. But the world is the people. And they don't have to be human, so the world is the characters. And the characters generate your stories. So my most fun thing about world building is characters. But for anybody else to care about your characters, you have to give them a good story. Nobody cares, and you can watch gamers' eyes glaze over at a convention when they say, let me tell you about the time my character kills Asmodeus. <laughs> and I go, oh. and, he, and then after he's been burbling for about 10 minutes, he says, I guess you had to be there. Well, that was the point. You did have to be there to share the experience, unless the storyteller is so good they can tell the unfolding story in front of you, so you are interested. Which is why, when you get to a wine and cheese party with cantankerous old people who dish the dirt on people and they tell you the delicious stories about, you know, real life celebrities and so on and the things they did, that's why it gets fascinating and you don't want to leave the party even if you have to go home because you have to work the next day or you have to visit the little men's room or the little ladies room urgently but you just don't want to leave because you want to hear every word because this is fascinating. <laughs> so therefore, it's really about story. All of this is the equivalent of sitting around the campfire saying, it's winter time. We're frozen in here for three months. I am bored beyond my mind and I am going to kill you and me if you don't entertain me. So entertain me. Tell me a story. That's what we're doing. We're telling stories. And what you're really doing is getting together with people who are already your friends or who will become your friends to have a good time telling stories, having a good laugh. If you are all students at school and there are teachers you hate or teachers you want to lampoon because they have pet stock phrases or things that bug you, and you, somebody can mimic them, everybody will laugh because it's a shared experience. And you can ridicule them in the way that you would dare not or shouldn't because it's cruel to do in real life. But you can ridicule it just between yourselves and laugh about it because to do that is to be human. It's one of the things humans do. And if you can do it in fantasy, in a clearly fantasy world in which magic works and there are dragons, then you're not hurting anybody in real life and you're blowing off steam and you're having fun and you're using your imagination and you're probably problem solving with all the people around the desk, which is why instead of bellowing against Satanism and witchcraft, teachers everywhere in the world should be saying, I want all my kids role playing in class. When I was a kid, back when the earth cooled and Everything was black and white and people moved in juking motions. We had role playing in our every history class because what they do is they put us back at, at Confederation in Canada or they put us back at the writing of the Constitution in the United States or they put us back at Otto von Bismarck and before that 
at Metternich and, uh, and the old putting together this patchwork of non-aggression pacts and alliances, the thing that fell apart to give with the Archduke Ferdinand to give us World War I, or building either of our nations, Canada or the United States, by putting railways right across this continent. And they would put you in the, in the position of bankers and railway tycoons and governors and rich people who wanted to invest money back then. And they would say, let's role play this. And then you would say, oh, now I understand why this state governor didn't want this. Now I understand why this guy wanted a war with so-and-so. That's why now I understand. It gives reasons for why the funny, crazy things that people who dressed funny thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago did. We now understand them because now you're in their shoes. We have these things up in Canada we call a model parliament, which is where students organize themselves like our parliament. For you guys, it would be organize yourself like Congress. And then you role play or you do the Senate. I am the senator, the junior senator from such. I'm the senior senator. And in order to get reelected, I want to get this bill through. Nobody in the South wants that. <laughs> but I'll horse trade with them. If you give me this, I'll give you this. And the back rooms will sit around over cigars and whiskey and we'll horse trade. Then you understand how things get done. And then you have a lot more sympathy when somebody says on the news, you know what they did last night? Oh my, right, right. And you can go, okay, I don't like it, but I get it. Which means role-playing games make us all better citizens. <laughs> See how I did that? <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad, Ed, that you weaseled and said <laughs> characters and story at the same time. Mm -hmm. I like Just listening to you talk about that, I, I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, there's that's true. If you remove the characters from a story, you can't have a good story. No. And if you remove the story from a, the characters, you're not going to have good characters. And the thing that immediately came to my mind was overwhelmingly, a lot of people loved the Lord of the Rings movies since you were talking about Tolkien. People love the Lord of the Rings movies, and I think that attests to you watch those movies and the character development that goes along with the story is amazing, and you really fall in love with those characters. And then vice versa, a lot of people just couldn't stand the Hobbit movies, and I think that was because, personally, I see very, very little character development in that movie there's so many characters in those movies that they really, you could take them out of the story and they do nothing for the story. And so there's these characters that are just pointless. And in, in the book, it wasn't that way. And you have characters not being important to the story. And thus then story really isn't affecting the characters. And I think that really speaks volumes, especially to Dungeon Masters listening. And we've, we've said it on the show before, but the players and the playable characters they are the characters in your story and you want them to be invested in the story and you want the story to center around them and it really that's what makes those great moments that as an entire group you can tell those stories to each other as a group and you know that's when you have a good game when you're all able to remember together the amazing things that the characters have done in the story together and that's when i think you've done it right yeah that's it the story doesn't matter if the characters don't matter. When the characters matter to you, then what happens to them has full meaning. And that's why you could be proud and, and open your mouth and say, we had this great time where we went up and fought the dragon or we fought Asmodeus or whatever it is. And you're genuinely proud of it, even though it's totally imaginary. You didn't save anyone's life as in real life. Or maybe you did. Maybe they were suicidal you know maybe they were gonna go nuts and you 
anchored them with something that mattered, a group of friends, something they could be a part of, so they weren't going to go off and blow their own brains out. Instead, they were going to say, hey, yeah, I want to be here next week because I want to go back adventuring with the princess. Yeah. You know, and, and that because the characters matter. It also lets all of us explore our own code of ethics. That lovely little scene in the movie Excalibur where Uther Pendragon has died leaving his sword stuck in the stone. And they're having this knight's tourney to get the sword out. And Kay is there with Arthur just as his squire. And somebody steals Kay's sword. And it's Kay's turn to go into the lists. Arthur finds the scabbard empty. He's got to find a sword. And he goes running off to the sword in the stone. And there's the druid who's supposed to watch over. He's fast asleep. Very nice little human nature touch. He pulls the sword from the stone and he runs back with it and gives it to Kay. <laughs> and Kay says, Arthur, this is Excalibur. Where did you get it? <laughs> you know, and then their father comes and says, Kay, you drew Excalibur. Yes, he says, I did. <laughs> and then he says, no, no, I didn't, father. Arthur drew it. <laughs> and you can watch all those human nature things, you know. And then, then what does the father say? Oh my goodness, put it back. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, so you get to see all those great moments of human nature around this thing. And then you come to that lovely scene where the knights are saying, well, this is Merlin's trickery. You're going to fob off a motherless boy on us? Mm -hmm. And the Patrick Stewart's character says, I saw what I saw. The boy drew the sword. If a boy drew the sword, then the boy is meant to be king. And he says that with guys on either side of him on the horseback who are going to attack him for saying that. He knows it, but he has principles, and he's going to stand up for his principles. The line in the sand has been drawn, and that is the thing in role-playing where we get to be heroes, even though there's no real blood and guts, even though we're not really saving the world or our country. We can stand up for something and we can explore what we will do. And it, quote, doesn't really matter because they are characters. So if you feel like you're ashamed of what your thief just did, okay, that wasn't me. That was the thief. <laughs> you know, oh, what's that Jessica Rabbit thing? I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you can explore what it is without hurting anybody. As long as everybody at the table is, is old enough and mature enough to understand this is play acting. Mm -hmm. In the same way that if you attend a play and somebody dies on stage or somebody's hiding or there's a tragedy and somebody in the audience just can't contain themselves and yells out advice to the, you know. If, if the people around the gaming table can control themselves enough not to do that so that they understand that this is all make-believe, it can be incredibly cathartic and incredibly developing and you can explore things. In fact, if you have a, a dungeon master and group of players who wants to do that, you can stop the play and say, okay, let's replay that. What if the king doesn't say yes? Let's replay it with the king mm -hmm. saying no. You can actually have retries at different scenarios yeah. in different ways and see how it turns out. And then you can actually sit down and, hey, democracy in action, real <laughs> democracy in action. Everybody around the table can vote just as we vote on what rules we're going to accept. Nah, I don't want that ranger build in our game. They're already overpowered, sort of thing. <laughs> but, but I mean, you can, you can vote around the table. Yeah, let's have that happen. Or I don't like that when they do that. And then you mm -hmm. can step out a game and say, okay, what upsets you so much about it? Let's talk about this. Because that way you don't end up somebody le leaving the campaign. I'm never playing with you guys again. Mm -hmm. You know, 
you you like too much violence or whatever it is. You can actually sit down and talk it over and say, "Go, does that upset you? Okay, what? Okay, we'll never do that in our games again." In other words, we're tailoring the entertainment to the audience. Hmm. I like that idea of voting and together reworking things. And I thought of Marvel What If comics, and I was like, "Oh, and uh-huh. it's." collaboratively building canon. I like that idea a lot. And that's what we're doing at TEG because there are so many creators. And that's what, of course, all of the, the TSR and later Wizards of the Coast worlds are like, but it's it's a little fuzzier there because, because it's work for hire and you have freelancers doing stuff and there's ostensibly a lore lord or lore guardian or realms traffic cop or somebody at the company that's approving and not approving. Yeah. But the problem is what it turns out to be is there are book editors over here approving things, there are games people over here approving things, and then we have a new edition of the game and suddenly assassins are out of the game so they all have to die in the realms and you go, what? (laughs) It isn't quite as clean and coherent as it could be because of real life. But that's what you are doing, collaborative building canon. Boy, now you're going to be scared of asking questions. What's he going to say next? What are we going to ask next? Well, you're just going to have to wait till next week because this is the point in the interview where we're going to stop, press pause, and we will pick it up again next week with more world-building questions for Ed. So I'm sure at this point you have a love-hate relationship with what just happened, namely that the first half of the interview is over, but there is going to be the second half coming up next week. If you want to contact us in the meantime and use more than 140 characters, the best way to do that is to email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. And as always, head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review if you see fit. And if you do that, you will get mentioned on the podcast. And as you can tell, it doesn't matter where you're from. We'll find your review one way or another. (laughs) Some may be harder than others, but eventually we'll find it. Or you can just tweet at us and tell us that you have a review from whatever country you're at and to do that you can follow us at dms block that's at dms underscore block on twitter and you can also go on facebook and like our facebook page you can contact us there as well you can like our facebook statuses you can share hint hint our facebook statuses on episodes that you like all those places will give you awesome updates about the show and dm memes and great DD stuff all around we have a patreon member shout out of the week and this week's patreon member shout out is ren curry yeah thank you so much ren curry ren curry is a silver dragon the majestic silver scales and the great wingspan shining in the sunlight of ren curry the silver dragon terrorizing the patreon section of the forums no doubt no doubt no doubt so thank you so much ren curry we appreciate all of your support as always so that's all we have for you this week on the dungeon master's block the place where we focus on the dungeon master the most important person in the game the only person capable of playing god killing characters and lowering the ego of all the other people at the table keep on dungeon mastering good afternoon yeah we'll do that one <laughs> I thought there was more. <laughs> no.
goodbye.